Dear Father, we thank you so much for the gift of your Son. We thank you so much for the love that you demonstrate in him. We thank you that you have poured this love out on us lavishly and that you have supplied us with all the riches of grace. We praise you in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. All right, you may all be seated. I'm having a bit of technical difficulty, but hopefully it'll be up and running soon. Uh, this week on Vashon, we've had a lot of what they call a king tide, where the tides have risen well above where they normally hit. And as uh, interesting as it is to look at all the pictures, uh, sometimes it can be a little difficult to realize just how much damage there is when it, the tide rises a little too high. Well, this in 1 John is the high tide mark, the end of uh, 1 John 4. And this one, we don't want the tide to stop rising. This one, when we hit this climax, we just want it to keep on going because it's not destroying anything, but rather it's building us up and it's encouraging us. So we, uh, we call this the high water mark of 1 John. This is as high as it goes because this is as high, honestly, as human language can conceive of. Uh, what we see about God and what he has done here is really the pinnacle of our faith, the pinnacle of maturity, where we truly get to understand who God is. Last week we saw that God is love, and that theme is going to return this morning. But we learn one more thing about love and what it does within us. Love is going to cast out fear, and we see that this is perfect love. Perfect love is love that has reached maturity. Love that is fully comprehensive of God's love, that's focused on God's love and understands it. The main idea this morning is the only way to truly love the way God does is to receive the love of God, to abide in it, to learn it, to depend on it, and to know as much about it as we can. And that's why we study his word, so we can understand his love for us. We can love anyone without fear of rejection or disappointment because we are loved perfectly in God. That solves one of the biggest problems we have in the body of Christ. Some people, because we know them, are just unlovable. But God loves them. And so we ought to love them. And that's not just a command without the ability to do so. That is a command that is impossible without God's giving us the ability, but he has given us the ability in him. So that is what we are exploring this morning. And the first most important aspect of being able to share God's love is understanding it. And so we start, or John starts rather, with how do we then perceive the love of God? How do we feel it? How do we know it? How do we make that part of who we are? And the first thing we want to see is that we are delivered. This is already a completed past action. This is something that is finished. 1 John 4.15, John writes, Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. Now these first two words are important. This whoever means literally anyone. There is no limitation on this invitation. Whoever. Whoever in the third class conditional, meaning they may or they may not. This speaks to our unlimited atonement. There is a possibility for every single person on earth to either agree with the gospel 
or to disagree with it. No one is chosen ahead of time for this blessing. God did not die for a select few. God did not look from beforehand into the future and die only for those who would choose him. He died for absolutely everyone. And so whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. Now confession is something we've looked at before. We broke it down in its Greek and we saw that it was hama lage, hama meaning the same, the same thing, and lage meaning speech. In other words, this is being of the same speech. Lege or logos can also mean thought or reason. It's having the same belief. Whoever shares this belief, whoever is in agreement about this fact, confession, unlike the connotation it takes in English, does not mean speaking outwardly. Because we can do this and not actually believe it. You can see an unbeliever and you can tell him, confess that Jesus is the Lord, and he'll say, all right, fine. That does not mean he agrees. The word in Greek does not mean speak. It means think. It means to agree inwardly. And often this has an outward profession, especially in this context of Christ. When one has believed in Jesus Christ, and then when one has understood what that means, they want to share this. So confession in the English sense generally does follow but not always. That's not the idea here. Whoever agrees with this fact that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. Now as well, this is in a different tense than we saw it before. In 1 John 4, 2, it said, By this we know the Spirit of God, every spirit that confesses, present tense, that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Well, this is how we can test a doctrine. If it's coming from someone and their present confession is not that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, then we know that whatever they're teaching is false doctrine. We can disregard it. But the confession that we're looking at here is in the aorist tense. This is similar to our simple past tense. It's looking at this as just a moment in time. If anyone at any time has simply agreed about this one fact, then they are now indwelled by the Godhead. God has come to make his home within them. There is life that comes from that. There are permanent features that cannot be removed from the believer at that point. There are also things that are dependent on continuing to believe. So we'll look at those as well. But this confession is a little different than something we might see in Paul's writing. We know that uh, Paul was once asked, what must I do to be saved? And he says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. He didn't say anything about Jesus being the son of God. In fact, he didn't say anything about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. These are simply shorthand terms for that gospel. The gospel that they came and that they preached, that Christ died and that he rose again. Because one integral part to understanding the gospel is to understand who Jesus is. Jesus died according to scripture. He had to. In order to set us free, he had to die. And in order to give us that freedom, he had to rise again. He had to 
live. His resurrection life is the life that we live. This is the gospel. This is what we believe for salvation. Jesus died and he rose again. Now there's an important feature in here. It's not Paul who died. It's not John who died. It's not Caesar who died. And if any of them had died for all of humanity, it would have been of no effect. It would have done absolutely nothing. What John's focusing on here is who Jesus is. The facts of what he did are taken for granted in his shorthand. He is highlighting the aspect of who God or who Jesus is. He is the son of man. If he was just God, he could have died somehow. That might be hard to think about. Maybe he couldn't. If he was just God, he couldn't have died for us. Hebrews 2 tells us he became like us so that he could die for us. And he is the son of God so that his sacrifice is effectual for everyone. Because let's say Paul or John or Caesar died, and let's say that they were good enough to die for someone else, how many would they have been good for? Would you have accepted Paul's life or John's life or Caesar's life for all of humanity or just as a substitute for one man? Jesus was both completely God and undiminished humanity. And so he's able to die for all of mankind. So John's shorthand tells us who he is and has as its background what he did. He is an able substitute because he's human. He is a sufficient substitute because he's God. And how did he substitute? He died for us. And then he lived for us. And both in his death and in his life, they are substituted for our own. That is going to be incredibly important as we move on in John's little epistle here. And he tells us this little phrase that we can move right past. But it really is the high watermark of the high watermark. That as he is, so are we in this world. Actually, I'm going to skip a few things here just for time. The result of this faith, the result of believing and receiving the gospel, is the indwelling of the Godhead. We know that the Spirit comes to live and indwell and empower believers at the moment of salvation. But along with him does come God the Father and God the Son. We should live and dwell in them as well. And that's going to be an issue of discipleship. John quickly moves from the gospel that we believed, giving us salvation, to how we then continue in that faith. He says, we have known and have believed the love which God has for us. This is doctrine based on the gospel that moves beyond the simple faith necessary for receiving Christ's righteousness. Because this is not just to have confessed, to agree, but this is in the perfect tense. Remember that perfect stative verb means to have known intimately, to have believed intimately, or we might say even intensely. We saw this back in 1 John 2, 3. 
By this we know presently that we have known him intensely if we keep his commandments. This is beyond just knowing who he is and what he did. But this is growing in a relationship with him. Our relationship with him grows as we dwell on his love, as we understand it better. There is an object of knowledge. There is content to knowledge. Here we see in 1 John 2, 3, what we know presently is that we have known him intimately. What we have known is him. Our content here, 1 John 4, 7 through 8, what we just sang. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Love goes beyond salvation to discipleship. You have to be born of God in order to be able to love like God, but you also have to know him, to know what love even is. The world has a perception of love, and it is a false one. It is destructive. It feeds off of others rather than giving to others. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. He's not come to know who God is. But 1 John 4, 9 through 10 told us, by this, the love of God was manifested, something we could know, something we could know intimately. In us, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. In this love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. We're starting our interlocked class on January 3rd, and one of the first doctrines we're going to deal with is the creator-creature distinction. The world believes in a continuity of being, that all being is one form, and that it's just elevated or lowered. So godhood or deity is just a higher form of humanity that through moralistic practices, we can elevate ourselves to godhood. Through reincarnation, we can elevate ourselves to godhood. The Bible teaches clearly a distinction between the creator and the creature, an impassable void. No human can ever become God. But look how amazing that God became human. He crossed the void for us because we want fellowship with God and intimacy that can't be had across that void. And so he had to humble himself and come to us. That's what it means when it says the love of God was manifested. The love of God was made visible. It's something that could come down and commune with us physically personally, and demonstrate love towards us. <clears throat> and as we grow in the knowledge of this wonderful and amazing love that God has for us in giving us his son, we come to be able to love others through that love. And so the goal of this is to become fully developed and matured as we are both saved and discipled. What is the result of this then? We have known, we have believed the love which God has for us, and God is love. This is his characteristic. This is a primary feature of who he is. There are plenty of characteristics that God has that we can't say he just is that, but one that we can is he is love. 
And notice this then, the one who abides in love, the one who moves beyond salvation and into discipleship, into fellowship, the one who abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. That sounds like a repeat of verse 15, but it's the other side of the coin. Verse 15 said, whoever confesses or agrees that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. And the one who abides in love, verse 16, he abides in God and God abides in him. This was the promise that Jesus gave to the disciples in John 17 in his high priestly prayer, where he said that in that day, you will know that I am in you and you are in me. He brought the whole Godhead into that. It's not just Jesus in him. It's not just the Holy Spirit in him. It is the fullness of the Godhead that comes to live in the believer. And so the believer at the moment he believes has all of God, none of him lacking. The question that remains is how much of God or how much of you does God have? Are you fully in him? Are you fully dwelling and living and loving in him? I love this quote by Brad Maston, and I've got a few quotes by some gentlemen this, this morning, and usually I try to steer away from quoting others. I know I do on occasion, but this being the high watermark of John, I thought it'd be nice to see just what some of these other gentlemen pull out of these verses. So Brad Maston writes here, the love of God isn't something we go out of our way to get. Nor is it something we can earn or try really hard to exhibit. The love of God is the natural result of the believer being in fellowship with God. For the believer, tapping into his love is as simple as being in fellowship with him and staying put. Love flows effortlessly from the life of the saint who is trusting in the Lord and resting in what he has done. This is the great secret of exercising our position in Christ. If love is difficult for you to exhibit, the solution is not to try harder. It's to figure out where the break in your relationship with God is, where the break in your understanding is. How do we resolve that? Scripture. Know who he is. You have to read his word to know who he is. You can't know someone without knowing their thoughts, and God reveals his thoughts in Scripture. And when we find where that break is, how do we fix it? By confessing, by agreeing with God about that break, by agreeing with God about where you have diverged from his thinking and relied on your own. Brad finishes with a good illustration. Just as the only way to efficiently drive a car is to remain seated, so the only way to efficiently grow in Christ is to rest abide, continue trusting him day by day, moment by moment. Imagine if every time a car was passing us on the highway, we tried to jump out the window for fear that that car might hit our car. Well, that's just dumb, isn't it? Stay seated. That was actually a, an emotion that I felt when I first started driving. So it kind of hits close to home. <laughs> Get me out of this thing the more we come to understand how safe we are in God's love, the less we get that feeling, I got to get out of here. And the more we're able to just rest. So now he moves into 
perfect love. What is this? He introduced it and he told us we have perfect love back in 1 John chapter 2. But he didn't explain how. He didn't explain the how to the what. And that's because he's driving towards that doctrine here at the end of chapter 4. And that doctrine is founded upon what we call identity truths. Who you are in Christ has everything to do with having perfect love. And who you are in Christ gives you confidence. This is why we call it the high water mark, because we see all of these doctrines that we've slowly built layer upon layer, they all converge right here. It's like an explosion of John's lexicon. Every big word he used, every big word he introduced now comes back. What is our confidence that we have in him? He writes in 4.17, by this, referring back to our perception of love in verse 16. By this love is perfected in us, with us, so that we may have confidence. Confidence is something John has talked about a lot. 1 John 2.28, now little children abide in him so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. 1 John 3.21, beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. This is a present tense. If our heart's not telling us, we should be worried. And we are confident. So how do we teach our heart not to be worried? How do we teach our heart not to try to jump out of the car? If our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight. We have a future tense hope. 1 John 2.28 We have confidence in the day of judgment that is yet future. And we have a very present hope. A present hope that when we stand before the throne of God in prayer, we belong there. This isn't something we look forward to in the future. This is something we will have perfectly in the future. But we have access to the throne room. Not standing in front of the throne, but sitting next to him on his throne because we are identified with Christ. And that is Christ's position. We have the right ear of God. He is there ready and waiting to listen to us. And we can approach him confidently, not because of our works, but because of Christ's. Because Christ is perfect and Christ is perfectly accepted and we are perfectly accepted in the beloved. So we may have confidence then looking forward into the day of judgment. 1 John 2.28 kind of avoided this implication. He just said in the, or when he returns. Well, all of scripture tells us that when he returns, that's going to be a day of judgment. We can see in Matthew 24 and 25 explicitly that when he comes back to earth, he comes back in judgment. But we have an important truth here that we must recognize and that quite honestly most in historical theology have not come to recognize that there is more than one kind of judgment there is not just judgment for saved and unsaved in fact that judgment is finished at the cross and for us that judgment was finished at the cross and becomes true of us the moment we believe 
Romans 8.1 says, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He doesn't just use a present tense verb. He adds an adverb. Now. Right now. At this moment. There is absolutely no condemnation for you because you are in Christ. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. You are already free from that. There is no judgment you're looking forward to in the sense of punishment. For what the law could not do weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. So where sin used to condemn you, now sin is condemned itself because Christ came and died so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. This is true of all of us. Romans 14.10 talks about a coming judgment for us though. Romans 8 says there's no condemnation. Romans 14 says you're going to be judged. But what about? But you, Paul says, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. So then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Your salvation has nothing to do with your account of yourself. When you stand before God, he is not going to ask you whether or not he should let you into heaven. He is going to see his son, his perfect son, when he looks at you, because that is our identity. 2 Corinthians 5.9 speaks of the same judgment. And keep in mind just how terrible the Corinthian church was. Like they were pretty rotten. Like this, the, the, the uh, title Corinthians was kind of like we might say the red light district or skid row. So next time you pass a church that says 1 Corinthian church, 1 skid row church, this is not a title you want you to have on your church, but at the same time, we see God's love toward believers, God's forgiveness toward believers. And then what believers should do in light of that, because we have this example of the Corinthian church. Now, in 2 Corinthians, they're doing much better than they were in 1 Corinthians. But he still brings up this topic of judgment. They will give an account before God of the way that they lived in the body. 1 Corinthians 5.9, Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. No matter where we are, no matter what we're doing, if we're visiting another church, if we're visiting another country, God is the one whom we are seeking to please, not man. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Now, recompensed is kind of a neutral word. The positive word would be rewarded. The things that we rested in Christ for, the things that we abided in him for, while he worked through us, those things will have rewards attached to them. Really, the one thing we're rewarded for is resting in him. That looks 
that uh, has the appearance of many different things on the other end of it because the Holy Spirit does many things through the yielded Christian. But really our focus is resting in him. He is going to do this and guess what a good deal we get rewarded for that. Now these rewards aren't self-serving. They serve us better than anything that could be self-serving would. Because in these rewards, the sun will be magnified. The sun will be glorified. And with our identity tied up with his, what do we want more than anything? For the sun to be glorified. Warren Wearsby has this excellent quote. The secret of our boldness is 1 John 4.17. Positionally, we are right now as he is. We are so closely identified with Christ as members of his body that our position in this world is like his exalted position in heaven. This means that the Father deals with us as he deals with his own beloved Son. How then can we ever be afraid? We do not have to be afraid of the future because our sins were judged in Christ when he died on the cross. The Father cannot judge our sins again without judging his Son. For as he is, so are we in this world. When we stand before the throne of God, there is no fear. Because we are there to be rewarded for Christ's work in us. We are there to be measured for how much did we yield to this work of his spirit. There's not going to be a fear of punishment on that day. There will be some rewarded more than others. But this is all to the glory of Christ the Son. There should be no fear attached to that judgment. And when we understand that, when we understand who we are in him, we understand that we don't need to fear that day, that we have nothing to fear, at least not in that way. We'll talk about that in a second too. But here is the reason, because. Why do we have confidence in the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. We've learned a lot about his incarnation so far. We learned that in the past, he became like one of us to die for us. That in the future, he is going to fulfill God's purpose in all of creation to place a human king over creation. And so far, I've only given you one application for the present, but there are two that are primary. And I have been saving the other one until now. The one that we've studied so far has been that presently we are empowered by the Holy Spirit just as he was while on earth. This is the doctrine of kenosis, that he gave up his own power for a time so that he would depend on the Holy Spirit. The reason he did this was to show us how we live in the Christian life, dependent upon the Spirit for power. But there is a second. He is our example. He is our identity because he is seated in the heavenlies presently right now as a man in the flesh glorified flesh albeit in the flesh he is our example on earth in life and he is our identity right now hebrews 2 9 says we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned him with glory and honor 
so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. That's our positional salvation finished at the cross. For it was fitting for him for whom all for whom are all things. This is looking forward to his glory on the throne of earth. For it was fitting for him for whom are all things. They belong to him. And through whom are all things. He was the creator. In bringing many sons to glory. To perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. Christ is the perfect savior. The perfect creator. The perfect king. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified. That means both Jesus and all believers are all from one father for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren but he having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time sat down at the right hand of god waiting from that time onward until his enemy enemies be made a footstool for his feet for by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified we are perfected already in him. Ephesians 2, one of the chapters that we're reading in our Bible reading this week. Ephesians 2 teaches us this incredible doctrine as well. He begins by telling us what we were, and then he tells us what we presently are. He says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. You were identified with death, therefore you walked in accordance with death. According to the prince of the power of the air, remember John's doctrine of the Antichrist or cosmos system versus God's system. According to the prince of the power of the air, those who are dead in their trespasses walk. Of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived, past tense, in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind. Now, Paul could have said this to the Corinthians as well. And in fact, in 1 Corinthians 6, he does. He says, you were once like this, but now you are not. After ridiculing them for all of their sexual deviances, he says, you no longer are that. That is no longer your identity. Because... He says, the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and you were by nature. He's speaking on the sense of, what are we by nature, by birth? They were children of Adam. By nature, they were children of wrath, even as the rest. But something changed. Paul has an, always an excellent use of that little particle, but. But. Whenever Paul says, but, especially but God. We get a great truth after it. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Notice that's in parentheses. Paul just cannot wait to get to the punchline that he gets to in verse 8. By grace, you have been saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. But Ephesians 2, 5 says he raised us up with him. Notice we are identified with him. He has given us life. 
we are forgiven. Equally true with all of these things, in the past tense, he raised us up with him. And he seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. This is as good as finished. Our senses, our experience has not yet caught up with our position. But that is what it means that we are predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. There is no such thing as an unbeliever who's predestined for anything. An unbeliever is a whoever. He may believe, he may not. But the moment you believe, you are predestined for glory. You will absolutely be glorified with Jesus Christ because it's as good as finished already. How many of you have ever heard of this man, John Nelson Darby? Some probably think he's pretty crazy. Some people just absolutely despise him with a passion, and that I still don't understand. Some chalk him up to just be someone who was overly fascinated with eschatology, with prophecy. He was just digging through scripture trying to find any way to be a prophet. He is pretty much responsible for the reintroduction of the doctrine of the pre-tribulational rapture. After the apostolic era, after the apostles all died, almost immediately heresy entered into the church concerning prophecy, concerning eschatology and our future hope with Christ that he would come and rescue us before pouring out his wrath on the earth on unbelievers. Started with Augustine, continued through the Catholic Church, was not corrected by the reformers. There were always groups, such as the Huguenots, who still had somewhat of a hope of the pre-tribulational rapture. But John Nelson Darby, in reading his scriptures, came to understand the pre-tribulational rapture as the apostles taught it. But it wasn't because he was digging through prophecy. In fact, I don't think this man was even concerned with prophecy until he saw the implications of who we are in Christ. This is his own explanation of what we might call a crisis of faith that turned into confidence in faith. This was around 1827 or 1828. Somewhere in there, he'd been in a horse riding accident. He was laid up in bed, and he just started studying his scriptures. He was an Irish uh, minister at this time in the uh, Church of England and was frustrated with the Church of England because they wouldn't allow anyone from Ireland to be part of the Church of England unless they pledged loyalty to England. And I don't know if you know many Irish, but good luck with that one. And so he wanted to include these Irish into the congregation, the body of Christ. So he's studying what is the body of Christ. Who are we as a people? This is the doctrine of ecclesiology, not eschatology. So he says, I came to understand that I was united to Christ in heaven. And that consequently, my place before God was represented by his own. Personal assurance of salvation in a new condition by being in Christ, the church as his body. 
He continues, I was in Christ, accepted in the beloved, and sitting in heavenly places in him. This led me directly to the apprehension of what the true church of God was, those that were united to Christ in heaven. And so at the same time, I saw that the Christian having his place in Christ in, the, in heaven has nothing to wait for save the coming of the Savior. In order to be set, in fact, in the glory which is already his portion in Christ. And what's his conclusion then? The coming of the Lord was the other truth which was brought to my mind from the word. This was an aside for Darby. This was the other truth which was brought to my mind from the word as that which, if sitting in heavenly places in Christ, was alone to be waited for, that I might sit in heavenly places with him. Darby understood the pre-tribulational rapture because he understood the nature of the church. The completion of our salvation, our identity in Christ. And if we are so already seated in heaven, there is no wrath to be poured out on us. The catching away of the believers is a reality and one that we long for. Because that's the moment we stand before the throne of Christ. We give an account of how we operated in the body and whether we depended on him. That's the moment we pass into glory. As Paul says in Philippians 3, when we see him, we will be like him. We're already like him. 1 John 3, 2 says, Beloved, now we are children of God and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. Notice this has to do with appearance. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. So we've got two things slightly different here. 1 John 3, 2, we will be like him in that world. 1 John 4, 17, we are like him in this world. This helps us calibrate. Calibration has been a big topic here for John. And so for us, remember by this, love is perfected with us. Going back to the top of the verse, we've seen perfect love already. First John 2, 4, the one who says, I have known him intimately and does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him, but whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. Working in this man, the love of God has reached maturity, completion. It's reached its goal. 1 John 4.12, we just saw last week, no one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Now, there is a slight change in this verse. By this, the love of God is perfected with us. Well, there's two different foci in these two sections of scripture. One is on how we operate in relationship to our fellow believers. The other is how we operate in relationship with God. Love perfected in us means love matured in our relationship to others. This casts out hate. Love perfected with us. This is a meta of association, we would call it. Love perfected with us 
His love matured in our relationship to God. And this love casts out fear. So as love is matured in us and with us, our relationship with our fellow believers is cured. Our relationship with God is cured. Casting out all hate and casting out all fear. In fact, it casts out the inhibition of the flesh. See, we think of the flesh as something that needs inhibition, something that it needs to be stopped. But the flesh serves as an inhibitor to the spirit as well. So we want to get rid of that inhibition. We want no inhibitions on the spirit. And we want all inhibitions on the flesh. And so John's helping us calibrate here. There is no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear. Romans 8.33, continuing in Paul's glorification section of Romans, he says, who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Christ's death, satisfying the penalty for our sins, Christ's life, giving us new life, Christ's present position at the right hand of God. What is there that anyone could raise against us? We're identified with him. An unbreakable bond, a new identity, a new nature. Romans 8.35, who will separate us from the love of Christ? That's Paul's rhetorical conclusion. Nothing. Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword, all of this the church has experienced. And in fact, it's only in cozy America that we seem to wail and scream that God's abandoned us. But when those who are faced with tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword, they seem to get a better understanding of God's love. Because they're not distracted by the worldly things. The worldly things aren't luring them in to depending on them. They have no worldly things to depend on. This is the best possible position God can put us in because then our sights are directed entirely at him. When he becomes our only hope, we see him as we ought to, even when we have other things we could put our hope in. Paul says, but in all these things we are overwhelmingly, or we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. So how does this perfect love cast out fear? The reason it casts out fear is because fear involves punishment. We already know that we have no punishment awaiting for us. Our punishment has been put on Christ on the cross. It's done. It's finished. It is complete. Now this word punishment needs a bit of attention because it only appears twice in the New Testament. It's not the normal word for punishment. It's understood contextually as punishment. The other place that we find it, which I did not include here, is Matthew 25, 46, in the sheep and the goat judgment. After the tribulation, when Jesus comes and judges the mortal survivors of the tribulation, he will cast aside the goats, those who did not believe, those who did not receive his righteousness, and they will go into eternal punishment. 
the Greek word kolasin. We understand 1 John 4.18 by our understanding of first or of Matthew 25.46, because it means that there, we say it means that here. And it may very well mean that fear involves punishment. Fear involves torment or terror. We might fear a future judgment. We might fear being punished in a future judgment. The presence of fear is a present torment on us as well. It eats us away. It eats away at us. And in secular Greek, this word doesn't appear very often either. In fact, we don't have any occurrences of it until recently, where some Greek texts were found in Egypt that use this term as an agricultural term for deadening a stock, a stock that's growing bad fruit, that's wasting the resources, cutting it off. This is the idea of kolasin in Greek, is a stunting of growth. Fear does stunt our growth. Fear stunts our ability to rest in Christ. If we are not confident in our position in Him, we're fearful of punishment. We don't move forward. We don't mature. We do know that the Christian life will at times involve discipline. In fact, we're even told that we should look forward to reproof because it's going to strengthen us. This is a different kind of fear, though, this fear of respect. This pruning. We prune fruit so that we'll bear more fruit. When we were little, we had a plum tree, and every summer we'd have to go out and hit it with baseball bats. I thought that was crazy. But you know, every time we did, it bore better fruit. Dad would tell us that we were hitting it because it would think it's being chopped down, so it's going to produce more fruit. Now, this isn't necessarily the kind of fruit bearing that we do as Christians. God doesn't beat us so we think we're about to die, so we produce fruit. No, not at all. But you know, we also have some cherry trees in our yard, and we clip off the long, scraggly branches because they are taking away resources from the branches that are producing. We clip those, we deaden them, we prune so that it might sprout in other places. Now this deadening that happens in Matthew 25, 46, where they're cast into eternal punishment, eternal deadening, because there is absolutely no fruit that can come from an unsaved person. The whole stock is cut off. But for the believer, the whole stock can never be cut off. He is our whole stock. We're branches on him. And branches that aren't producing things in our flesh that are taking resources, taking our time, he's going to cut those off for our benefit, for our good, so that we might produce spiritual things through the Spirit. So that when we get to the day where we stand before his throne, we have rewards. We waste an undue amount of time in our lives worried about all of these worldly things. We spend our entire life working towards our earthly house that's going to perish. It's going to be gone. It has no eternal value whatsoever. And we pay absolutely no attention to our eternal house. Now that is insanity. But here... 
1 John 15, we see how God prunes the believer. He says, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes it away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. We shouldn't fear discipline, but we have no need to fear punishment. God does not punish us. God will discipline. He will teach and he will instruct. He will guide us along and he will take away things that are distracting us, but he will not take away anything that is good for us. Hebrews 12, 7 says, it is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. If you look at someone who just seems to have the world handed to him on a silver platter, don't be jealous of him. He's an illegitimate son. He is not a child of God. He is someone with whom God does not deal with in discipline. Now, I got in trouble occasionally at friends' houses, and it was always surprising to me when that parent decided to punish me as well as my friend, who I probably instigated into getting in trouble. But it was no surprise to me when my own parents would discipline me. That I expected. They were my parents. And you know, the result was different. I didn't know whether or not this friend's parent liked me or not. In fact, I would get the distinct sense that they didn't. But my own parents, when they would punish me, might not be joyful in the moment. But I know certainly that they did that because they loved me. And that is how we deal with God. We have a fear in the sense of respect, not in the sense of terror. Because he is trying to grow us up. Hebrews 12.9, furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they discipline us for a short time, as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, so that we may share his holiness. We are identified with him. He's grooming us to be more like him. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. There is no fear in love. Because even the discipline that comes along with love, we know that it is for our benefit. When we understand doctrine, when we understand his love for us, we never look at discipline as a punishment. We look at it as an opportunity, and we know that he is carrying us through it, that he is not going to give us more than we can handle. Why? Because his spirit is what handles it in us. He has given us a task, and he has given us the power to do it. The issue is trusting him. He is our lifeline, and love is the bond of that lifeline. Now, in 2015, I spent some time in Ecuador. I loved it. It was a lot of fun. There were nine of us who went down. And for our first outing, we had Fridays, Saturdays, and Sundays off. For one of our first outings, we decided to go to a little town called Baños de Ambato. It's this little town with a lot of little hot springs. It's up in the mountains. The Amazon River flows through it, or at least an arm of it. 
The jungle is just on the other side of the mountains. Seemed like a lot of fun. Well, the very first day, very first morning, all my friends got up early and I got up with them all excited to see what we're going to go doing. And they said, we're going whitewater river rafting. I said, I think I've got some homework I've got to do. I stayed at home and I did my homework, not really wanting to tell any of them I am terrified of drowning. Probably my biggest fear. So they all come back. They asked if I got my homework done. Oh, yeah, I got it done. What are we going to do next? And they said, we're going bungee jumping. I'm just like, all right, okay. At least I won't feel it very long. Like drowning takes too long. That's my problem with it. If I splat on the ground, I'm probably dead. So I'm like, all right, we can do this. Only problem was we're bungee jumping over a river. <laughs> so I get there. We're all lined up, all nine of us. And I'm like, okay, I've got the camera, so I'm going to go last. So I watched all of my friends go off. My friend David decides to do a backflip off the bridge. Everyone else is just like fully sprawling out there. They're all trying to get me hyped up to go, and I'm just like, oh, man, if I hit that water. One of the most comforting things, the... Uh, the guy strapping us into this bungee cord told us was you'd probably die the moment you hit the water just because of how far down it is. Surprisingly, that was a comfort. But you know what? I watched eight people jump off that bridge with that cord attached to them. And I watched eight people, perfectly fine, having a really good time. So you know what? With my knees shaking, and they're still shaking right now thinking of it, I jumped. And guess what? That rope caught me. And guess what? I sprung back up, swung for a little bit. They pulled me right in. I had trust. Jumping helped build that trust. I probably would have had a rotten time on this trip if I hadn't jumped off that bridge the first day. Because let me assure you, this is not the craziest thing we did that weekend. In fact, they even got me on a long canoe traveling down the Amazon River. There are no cords attached to that boat, and it could tip at any moment. This is how we ought to be with God's love. There's no reason not to trust that rope. And yes, it's terrifying sometimes. But we have every evidence that it is sufficient to hold us. It will not break. It protects us. David Anderson, I'm just paraphrasing him here, writes this about God's perfect love towards us. It says, fear of rejection stunts initiating love. When we operate in fear that we won't have enough love, it's really hard to give love away. If I give you some, I won't have enough for me. If I give you some, maybe you won't give it back. But our love is already anticipated in him, in Jesus. And we are already accepted in the beloved. When we understand his love, we can love fearlessly, without walls, without emptying our own wells. Because he fills it. When we love, we don't think about how the person we're loving is going to reciprocate. 
We have already been given the most perfect love by God without a guarantee that we will reciprocate. When we are loving God's children, what we are doing is reciprocating his love, love that we've already been given. And so if we look at another and fear that they're not going to love us back, look at God who just gave you love and told you to reciprocate by loving someone else. We don't look to other people to fill our cup with love. It's already full with God. We learn that we trust in it. Romans 8.38, For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Notice, that's the high water mark of Paul's epistle as well. Fascinating how these epistles hit their high water mark when talking about God's love. There is nothing more perfect that we can depend on. There is nothing more dependable than God's love, and there is nothing more perfect and complete than God's love. So 1 John 4.19 tells us we love God because he first loved us. That's the source. That's the beginning of it. That's where it begins. And in the NASB text, God isn't present as the object there. It just says we love because he first loved us. Now, to be honest, I'm not quite sure which one this is. The majority of the texts have the object God present in there, but the oldest and best texts do not. I tend to lean towards the object was not present. Because we have the love of God, because he has loved us perfectly, we are, we are able to love both God and people. Because we have personal love with God, love that knows intimately the other person, we can have impersonal love with anyone, people we know or people we don't know. And God tells us to do that as well. In 1 John 4.20, he writes, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. On TV, it seems to be a common theme that someone will try to marry into a family and this, this woman will have kids already. And the big deal breaker is, are they kind to the children? Will they be a parent, a loving parent to these children? The woman may already know that this man loves her, but the true demonstration of it is, will he love my children as well? This is how we show God that we do love him. Because all of those whose sins he died to take away, all of them have been loved perfectly by him, have been given a perfect gift by him, have been offered new life through him. In fact, we are some of those unlovable people who have been loved by God. How then could we not? Only if it is the flesh that is leading. If the spirit leads, love is natural. We're not thinking highly of ourselves because we're not appraising ourselves in the flesh, but in the spirit. And in the spirit, there's no room for boasting because he has finished it all. So John asks then, but the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. It's a lot easier to love people who we haven't seen. No matter what, when we interact with people, we're going to get bumps and bruises. 
But we don't need to look to those people to heal those bumps and bruises. We look to God. And we go out fearlessly into battle because you know what? People will break our hearts. People will upset us. But if we are calibrated to need that sort of fuel, it's going to be an impossible life. But if we are calibrated to need spiritual fuel, nothing on this earth is going to disrupt that love. Now I have a bit of an extended quote by Robert Dean. He's a pastor down in Texas. Some of you have probably already read this quote. I posted it on Facebook, but it is an incredible quote talking about impersonal and personal love. He says, understanding reciprocal or personal love helps us to handle unrealistic expectations in life. Many feel they have never been loved or accepted the way they want to be. They haven't been treated the way they think they ought to be. Quote, because I was never loved, I was never treated right. Unrealistic expectation is a trap that leads to self-absorption, to self-pity, to all kinds of mental attitude sins, and creates a trap that leads to fragmentation of the soul. This does not sound very healthy, does it? It begins as a child, a teen, a young adult, when we begin to think we should be treated differently than we are. The solution to this is having a view of reality based on doctrine. That view is people are always going to fail us. The sin nature. This isn't cynicism. This is realism. People have a sin nature, especially the unregenerate who do not also have a new nature. There will always be problems with people because people are sinners and we can never base our happiness, stability, future success, or anything on how other people respond to us. Once we become people dependent, we have paved the road to misery. Unrealistic expectations divorced from reality in combination with an ignorance of biblical truth destroys the focus of the spiritual life. Unrealistic expectation always puts the emphasis on disappointment and loss. On what I don't have, what I missed out on, what people didn't do for me. Motivation then comes to get people to fulfill our expectations. You know how we do this? Manipulation. We want to manipulate people to do what we want or expect them to do. Rob Dean concludes this. We must realize that only God can love us the way we ought to be loved. Because God's love is based on his integrity and his immutability. Something that people do not have. God's love is based on his character and not on who we are or what we do. Furthermore, God's love is not emotional. It is not based on circumstances. It does not fluctuate. It is always the same. It is only by understanding God's love and what he has provided that we can in turn have real stability and happiness in life. The last slide here. When we are grounded in perfect love of God, then we can handle the disappointments and fluctuations in life. Therefore, we can genuinely love other people because there is a character built in us that is the character of Christ. That is evidenced by how we treat other believers. We learn to love God based on doctrine that transforms our souls 
And only then are we able to love the brother whom we have seen. This is 1 John 4.21, contrary to the slide heading. It says, this commandment we have from him. It's important to understand our identity in Christ because otherwise the commandment we have from him is impossible. This commandment we have from him that the one who loves God should love his brother also. The main idea for this morning then, the only way to truly love the way God is, God does, is to receive the love of God, to abide in it, to learn it, to depend on it, and know as much about it as we can. We can love anyone without fear of rejection or disappointment because we are loved perfectly in God. Let's pray. Dear Father, we are so thankful for the amazing love that you have given us, that you've poured it out freely upon us with no expectation of return, but that as we abide in that love and as we grow in you, the return is stupendous. The return is amazing and it is what we do not deserve. It is riches and glories and and reward waiting for us without the fear of punishment. So we praise you and we thank you in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.